to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Uh, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome back uh, Deb Amos, who is uh, one of the nation's premier foreign correspondents. Uh, she is the uh, Middle East correspondent for NPR News, and her stuff is heard regularly and uh, insightfully on NPR in all of its iterations. By the way, this is Steve Oney, if you've not met him. He's doing a book on NPR. And is we do know us. each other. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I think that the thing that uh, Deb is here to talk about is something quite important, which is the way we misunderstand the Middle East and specific things in the Middle East based on what we are told in our media, which of course she is a part of. So this is to a degree I would think something that is in its own way self-criticism and institutional self-criticism, but it's something that we really need to understand. As we were talking before uh, we came in here, she was for instance telling me that uh, she was recently in Tehran and, uh, well, that it would be surpri surprising to us based on what we read about Iran and Tehran in particular um, of what the reality there is, what the reality of life is. Deb, we're very glad to have you with Thank us. Thank you. And uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back. I had three fabulous months here in 2012, and I'm proud to say that my paper that I wrote is still taught in some journalism school. <laughs> um, probably more proud of that than almost anything I do on national public radio. Um, and I picked the title, um, Why or Can You Trust the Western Media, more because that question annoys me. Uh, and I saw it as a headline in an Australian newspaper a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the headline was three reasons, only three, why you can't trust the Western media on Syria. It has been a theme that has surrounded Syrian coverage in particular since the beginning of the uprising. And somehow we are told that we didn't get it quite right. This particular article was written by a think tank guy. And he takes the media to task for a couple of failures. He begins with one that I actually agree with. And it is a Vogue cover that appears in 2011, just as the revolt is kicking off. And it's a profile of Asma al-Assad. She's the wife of Bashar al-Assad. Um, and it was called A Rose in the Desert. And Asma was portrayed as the gentle face of a reformist family. Now, if this piece had come out a year earlier, nobody would have noticed. Um, Syria simply wasn't covered in the Western media. It was hard to get a visa. Nobody really cared. Um, they were uh, a Russian uh, ally, and it just wasn't part of our coverage. But Juliet Buck picked a very bad time to do a profile of Asma, uh, because this was at the moment that the Arab Spring was kicking off, and at the moment that the Syrian regime uh, was uh, engaged in a particularly brutal repression of uh, the protesters. And so the desert... Rose wilted at about the same time as Juliet Buck's career. Um, and she tried to apologize in a piece in Newsweek and only made it worse. 
I agree with him on that criticism of the media, but that one is easy. Here are the three things that he claims that we have gotten completely wrong. And that is that the Western media portrayed the Syrian regime as a narrowly based sectarian autocracy that lacked popular support. That the U.S. simply needs to intervene to stop the killing. And three, that the opposition forces are champions of democracy and they should be supported. These critiques are all part of opinion pieces. This is not what we do for a living. It's not our job to advocate for intervention. It's not our job to promote a political opposition. Um, and it is certainly not our job to either criticize the regime for whether they're popular or not. Um, I think what happened with the Syrian story, and I'll get to Ukraine in a minute because I think it's falling under the same category, is that these conflicts are more complicated than our dear readers and listeners expected. Somehow we are blamed for this new media landscape where you have bloggers, ideologues, citizen journalists, Twitter campaigners, a lot of state-sponsored propaganda sites. All of that is along the mainstream media. And so we get blamed for a failure to diagnose or to even offer solutions to these conflicts. I'm going to talk about the parallels between what I see with the Ukrainian coverage and what I saw with the Syrian coverage, because I think that Ukraine is coming under the same kind of scrutiny. I saw a headline yesterday that said, everything you know about Ukraine is wrong. Substitute Syria, and it's the same idea. The quotes on this piece, to get it right, are the protesters are not virtuous anti-Putin freedom fighters, nor are they Nazis or U.S. puppets. And this is according to the journalist who wants to put it all right. He does explain that some of the protesters are, in fact, actually neo-fascists, and they did play a significant role in the protest. If you substitute al-Qaeda for that uh, uh, description, then you have some parallels to what was happening in Syria. In both cases, what you have are people protesting or supporting those protesters who are sick and tired of a country run by a handful of oligarchs. But in each case, the ruling class and powerful state media organizations knew something about how to use chaos and how careful propaganda works in the Syrian case, it took them about a year to figure this out, but they did, how it works to garner support from their own base and from an international audience. Now, in Syria, it was chaos that opened uh, a foothold for al-Qaeda. They filled a vacuum when Western powers said that they would support the opposition rhetorically, but it was Gulf states who did it with cash. Uh, they did it with Islamist forces uh, while we simply said that we were going to support. We had an American president who proclaimed that the Syrian uh, Assad's days were numbered, but did really little in terms of policy to make that happen. Again, Gulf private funders and Gulf states stepped into that void. And they were the ones who were funding the most radical of the Islamic groups. Then Iran stepped in uh, to write that balance. Uh, the Russians stepped in on an international plane. And what you now have in Syria are at least five different wars. It is the most complicated of all the conflicts in the Middle East. 
And that partly goes to why I think the media is criticized for not getting it right. It's not that we didn't get it right. It is beyond our powers in some ways to explain just how complicated uh, this story is in each individual story that we write. Here's another similarity with Ukraine, and I find this really interesting when I looked at it, and it is the fears of a minority population. It plays a huge role in coverage. In Kiev, this headline caught the attention of the Israeli media. Ukraine rabbi tells Kiev's Jews to flee the city. It was headlined in Haaretz, which is one of the largest Israeli papers. The story goes on to point out, fearing violence against Ukraine's Jews, the Jewish community asks Israel for assistance. That very same day, Haaretz had to retract the story uh, because they realized that they had been taken for a ride by Moscow. The correction is interesting. An earlier version of this story incorrectly described Rabbi Asman as the chief rabbi of Ukraine. Asman is not the country's chief rabbi, but one of two rabbis challenging the official chief rabbi. The challengers were all aligned with Moscow. In Syria, you have the same thing that happens with the Christian minority. They get a lot of attention in the Western media. Most of it is bad, simplistic, and manipulative. Syria is a country of minorities. Christians are just one of the groups in the country. You have Alawites, that's an offshoot of Shia Islam. You have 12 or Shias, that's, uh, they're also Muslims, it's about 1% of the population. You have Turkmen, Druze, those are both Muslim offshoots. You have Kurds, which is an ethnic minority. You have Armenians, which is another ethnic minority. And you have the Sunnis. That's about 75% of the population. This is the mix that is the reason that Syria is imploding. This is a place that has artificial borders that were created by colonial powers, and historically, colonial powers promoted minority rule. It was a way to keep the majority in place. It's not exactly how the Assads came to power. That was by a coup, but Syria has been ruled by a minority regime for more than 40 years. And it's pushed the country into this unstable power imbalance. So what we're seeing in Syria is a rebalance of power along sectarian and religious lines. But I want to go back to the Christians because they have gotten the most attention in the Western media from stories about nuns being captured by al-Qaeda to Christians fed to the dogs by al-Qaeda. And this story appeared just a couple of days ago in a blog called The American Dream, Precious Little Girl Dismembered While She's Alive by Obama's Psychotic Syrian Rebels. Now, how much of this is true is really unclear. Much of this kind of reporting comes from Syrian and Russian government sources. And it finds its way into reputable mainstream media through Christian news outlets. And you would be surprised how many there are. When you go look up the nuns of Malula, it is huge in the Christian press. A Vatican news agency has, on more than one occasion, reported word for word a report on the alleged massacres of Christ a massacre of Christians in Hama. And they got it from a website called Syria Truth, which is a pro-Assad website. In the last month, we've had Americans involved in this kind of propaganda campaign, and I'm going to tell you about the story of Kassab. This is the latest story in Syria. 
It's a historically significant village on the Syrian coast. Kassab has a population of about 2,000. Almost all of the families there are Syrian Armenians. And in the past month, Kassab and its Christian Armenians have been the subject of an intense propaganda fight um, that's also drawn in Kim Kardashian and Cher. Uh, both of whom waded into the battle with tweets to millions of their followers, save Kassab, Kardashian compared it to the 1915 Armenian genocide when more than a million Armenians were killed. And she tweeted out to her followers, please, let's not let history repeat itself. Let's get this trending. <laughs> Ms. Kardashian is unlikely to know that Kassab until recently was a stronghold for Bashar al-Assad, which has a whole lot more to do with the rebel attack and its strategic significance than an attempt by anybody to repeat a genocide of a million Armenians. The village itself is actually historically noteworthy, and I would not have known that this until it all came to our attention. And that is that some of the people who live in Kassab actually are survivors of the 1915 genocide. They were sent off to the desert in Derizor, which is in the east of Syria. Uh, in the 20s, they came back to Kassab. They lobbied the French government and the Pope to keep this little village on the Syrian side of the border in 1939, rather than become part of the new Turkish state. So it's not that they don't have memories of this event. Of course, they do. But all of this history is a backdrop to the latest developments. Fertile ground for media manipulation, which is what happened. Pro-regime websites promoted a 2005 horror film called Internal Damna Damnation to give the impression that a massacre had taken place there. It was brought up in the U.S. Congress. Uh, there has been a worldwide campaign but claims that churches were desecrated by radical Islamist rebels, that hundreds of Syrian Armenians were killed, have now been largely debunked. But not before this worldwide campaign that particularly went after Turkish support for the rebels um, and accused them of trying to bring the genocide back to Syria. So in my mind, we are competing with this remarkable number of outlets, and not all of them have the same journalistic standards that we do. So in a way, it's a problem of media literacy in this age of a chaotic news environment. What I've seen over the last three years is the Assad regime has become very, very adept in a media blitz. Um, at the, about the same time that they've regained their military superiority, and they've done that with the help of the Iranians, and with the help of Hezbollah. Pro-Assad websites have even found a way to influence the American debate. Um, Assad supporters' claims have been repeated by right-wing commentators in the United States who shared the same hostility to the Obama administration and the Sunni Islamists that are at the forefront of the Syrian rebel opposition. Last year, R Rush Limbaugh told his audience that Syrian rebels had framed Assad for a chemical weapons attack in the suburbs of Damascus. And not only that, he added that President Obama was complicit in it. Uh, Lindbergh told his audience that there was mounting evidence that the White House knew and possibly helped plan the Syrian chemical weapons attack. So right-wing radio has taken up with the Syrian regime. It's a very odd bedfellow. 
Um, there are also pro-Assad voices that have helped shape the debate in Europe, in particular in Britain. There's a British group called Stop the War, and they were very instrumental in stopping, uh, helping to stop uh, the British Parliament uh, from saying yes to an airstrike um, last August after the chemical weapons attack um, in uh, Ghouta. These people are not only anti-interventionists, but they are actually pro-Assad activists. The vice president of the organization praised the Syrian president for his long history of resisting imperialism. In Europe, there is a current of anti-imperialism. Sometimes it manifests itself as anti-Americanism, and you see it represented in the mainstream media in Britain. They have no problem with authoritarian regimes. It is anti-imperialism that they are after, and Assad, for them, fits the bill. In closing my remarks, I want to talk a little bit about citizen journalism, um, because it has made a huge difference in Syria. Um, not as much, I think, in Egypt, and, and I hope we can talk about that, but Syria has been the heart of citizen journalism almost from the beginning. And it's really changed the way our job works. They filled a void, these activists, particularly in the beginning of the revolt, because we were all denied access by the Syrian regime. They believed that it was possible to kill a story, to erase a story, simply by denying us visas. And they believed it was possible in this age of the internet and smartphones and satellites. In the spring of 2011, as we were all being kicked out of Syria, it was Syrian citizen journalists who risked their lives to document the uprising. And they were determined that there was going to be a narrative of this uprising. They were the children of 1982, uh, when Bashar al-Assad's father had suppressed an uprising in Hama with the Muslim Brotherhood. There are only about 30 pictures from that time, and we still don't really know how many people died. You look up on Wikipedia, and it's somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000. That's a huge gap in how many people died. And young Syrians believe that the reason for that is it wasn't documented, and they were determined that it wasn't going to happen again. And so this time, uh, they used cell phones in the beginning. Um, soon after, Western governments and private funders uh, made sure that they had professional gear. Sometimes they were trained by Western governments in southern Turkey in the same way that rebels were funded in southern Turkey. And so they had cameras, they had video recorders, they had satellite uplinks. In fact, one of the films uh, from this group has just won at the Sundance Film Festival. These people became incredibly adept uh, at documenting. There's a recent study out that the USIP did in Washington uh, that they said the Syrian conflict is the most socially mediated civil conflict in history. There is a remarkable amount of data out of Syria. What we are still missing is the analysis. And I tell you all of this to uh, explain what happened on August 21st, 2013. On that morning, I woke up to the news of a chemical attack in the eastern suburbs of Ghouta. By the time I woke up, serious seven hours ahead, my email inbox and my Skype account was already full of the most horrific pictures that I'd seen in a war that has been, um, has produced some of the most shocking images of war. There were people who 
were gasping for breath, victims were glassy-eyed, there were medical people splashing water on writhing bodies, there were corpses of young children uh, in the clinics. This was the chemical attack in Ghouta. Now, the regime tried its best to change the narrative. Um, they blamed it on the rebels. They said it was Saudi Arabia who had delivered the chemicals. They said it was the rebels who wanted uh, Western powers to intervene. Um, but it was the pictures that carried the day. And soon there was a UN uh, investigative team that came to Ghouta and wrote a pretty thorough report that stands as the definitive, as close as it gets to the answer. There are still people who are arguing about who was at fault, um, but in this case, citizen journalists won. Without them, we would have had no record of what happened in Ghouta. Up until that time, there had been 14 chemical weapons attacks in Syria, and not a single one of them had been documented. Now, let's fast forward to April... 2014, this month in Syria, in a rebel-held village called Kafir Zeta. This time, both the regime and the rebels say that there was a chemical attack, but they blame each other. And this time, the regime was much quicker and more clever in how to blunt citizen journalism. Once again, citizen journalists from this small village posted online videos. Some of the victims were taken to Turkey for treatment. The rebels charged that the regime had put chlorine gas in barrel bombs. This has now been uh, a weapon of choice for the regime um, to fill an oil barrel with explosives and with shrapnel. And in this case, apparently, the rebels say that they use chlorine gas and they were the perpetrators of this attack. What the regime did is say, no, this was al-Qaeda. And in fact, 10 days before the account, the, the attack, they sent an account of a telephone um, uh, tap of two militants talking about using chlorine gas in this particular village. And so 10 days before the attack, if you were watching social media, the rebels were saying, it's coming, they're going to get us, it's coming. Uh, but you had to be watching closely to see this interplay between the regime and, and the rebels. What has happened since the Kafir Zeta attack is most Western governments say, we, we don't really know. What is most important for us is that the regime's chemical weapons arsenal is brought out of the country, and nobody is willing to rock the boat to put more pressure on the Syrians. They want the chemical, the entire arsenal, out of the country. And so for the first time, you saw a learning curve that you actually can blunt the effect of citizen journalists by getting ahead of the propaganda curve. Now, I want to make a case for us as professional journalists. I think even though we have been criticized for not getting it right in Syria, what I'm saying is we are in a landscape of media chaos. And it's almost impossible for any media outlet, mainstream or not, to get any of these conflicts right. They are very complex, and there are competing voices for your attention. But I think that there's no substitute for what we do. What we do is different from what citizen journalists do. Eyewitness accounts with journalistic rigor, and I am here to challenge the Australian newspaper headline that asks, can we trust the Western media on Syria? 
And my answer is, yes, we can. Thank you, Deborah. Um, let me... Um, let me ask the first question, and then we'll, we'll open it. Um, when you look at Syria as someone who has been an observer there for a while, do you see uh, an outcome that could be considered best for the United States? Um, there is no best outcome for any of the proxy powers who are now fighting there. Um, Syria's economy will take 25 years. It will be a destabilizing factor in the region for a generation. It requires a solution to the standoff between the Iranians and Saudi Arabia. It requires a resolution to the standoff between the United States and Russia. It requires addressing the Kurds' aspirations for some sort of autonomy. It requires a governance that protects minorities. Um, it requires some stability so that 2.5 million and counting refugees can go home and not put so much pressure on all of the neighboring governments. There's no formula in there that tells you that there is a good outcome for anybody, including the United States. Okay. Is there a least bad? Uh, I don't even see a least bad. Uh, all, all options at the moment are bad because we're nowhere close to a resolution. All of those things that I just outlined are not even close. And so, as a Polish diplomat in Tehran said to me, we are now in a situation where it is likely to bleed out. The Lebanese civil war lasted for 15 years. The problem and the difference I see between what happened in Lebanon and what happened in Syria is as time goes on, the refugee population destabilizes more and more. Uh, Lebanon is the most serious case of all. Uh, the latest count is 1 million official refugees. Most people think it's 1.5. By the end of this year, there's likely to be 2 million Syrians in a population of 4 million. That's an extraordinary number. Um, there are villages in Lebanon, more than 60% of villages in Lebanon now have more Syrians than Lebanese. It's almost unimaginable how any government, and one that's as fraught as the Lebanese government, can stabilize itself in those kind of circumstances. Jordan is a little better off. Um, they, because they've been in the refugee business for 60 years, have figured out how to build the international community and pay for those numbers. And I suspect that Jordan has come to see that a Syrian population for them balances the large number of Palestinians that they have in Jordan. And they are already beginning to work on joint economic projects. It's interesting to, to see how they have um, uh, used this crisis to actually bolster their economy. But the, the problem I see is we are nowhere close to any kind of resolution. And in the, in the reality that Ukraine has now sort of captured the American attention in terms of foreign policy, uh, is Syria simply going to not get better but simply fade from the, from the headlines and from the front page and from all things considered? Yes. That's already happening. Uh, Ukraine is taking up all of the airspace. I, uh, you know drop one of my reporting trips because my office said, you're not going to get on the air. Uh, Ukraine is just taking up all the airspace. So 
you know, pick your shots. Uh, you see The Times is doing the same. Um, in some ways, the coverage is interesting because I think in some ways the coverage is better. We have more time. Um, I saw Ben Hubbard spend six weeks in Jordan and come out with two just really fabulous pieces of reporting. And a year earlier, that would have been impossible to get that kind of time to go do that kind of reporting. So we may get uh, quality as opposed to quantity, and that's not such a bad thing. Uh, but we do tire of these stories. Um, and I mean, I think the Egyptian coverage is the same. You just don't see it as much. Uh, people are tired of it. There's no resolution. And it gets very repetitive. It's it the same does. Story. It's, it's bang, explosion, bang, yes. explosion, rebel whole village back and forth. And it's bad, and, and it's bad. bad. And there's and nobody and, to be for. And, yeah. and unresolvable. And um, I think the repetition is really tricky. I mean, Iraq suffered from this enormously. Yes. Um, you know, it got a bit better and then it got worse, but it's the same story over and over, over again. Over and over again. Let me open it first to students, if there are any students who would like to uh, ask a question. Okay. Tammy? Um, I wanted to ask about, uh, you talked about media literacy and also citizen journalism, how you actually verify information in the supportive environment in Syria. Um, do you use, I know there's an organization, for example, Storyful, that tries to verify video and information coming up. To what extent um, do professional journalists find themselves having to rely or work with organizations like that? You know, it's really been a learning curve in Syria. Um, I remember in the beginning when all of us, you know, set up shop in Beirut because there was no place else to be. And, you know, I would spend eight hours on the couch uh, of my translator's apartment in Beirut. I felt like I was in college again. And we'd have three screens up because he was a, a computer nerd. And we would watch Al Jazeera, Syrian television, and the BBC. And we'd be on Skype with people in those places um, and trying to figure out what was happening in a full day on a Friday when there would be demonstrations in five cities. Um, and sometimes the video wasn't coming out because they didn't have a connection. And it was a nightmare, especially for a radio journalist, because television could use the pictures, print could use the quotes. <laughs> I was stuck with bad everything. Um, but I think as time has gone on, what, what you do is you have dependable people in places. Um, there have been a couple of media outlets that ha have helped. Syria Deeply um, has arrived on the scene and has drilled down into the story. And they have 15 correspondents in 15 different cities. They translate their reporting into English. There's an editor that's working with them. So you're seeing a professionalized... Uh, Syrian journalist corps inside. Um, the second uh, thing, the phenomenon, is these professional, insane people that look at every video. There's Brown Moses, who looks at all the videos. Um, there's Philip Smythe, who is an expert on Shia militias who are coming into Syria. That's a new phenomenon. They're coming out of Iraq. They're being recruited in Najaf and Karbala. There's big billboards in both of those cities. They go to Iran. They're trained. They, they come in. Um, and he looks at every video. And so um, there's somebody who does that on the Sunni side. Um, there's a 21-year-old in London who looks at all of the jihadi videos. And that has been a help for us. You learn to depend on those, um, you know, insane people who do things that we just don't have the time for. And 
it's it's a new phenomenon in Do journalism. They get paid? I don't know how they make a living. Some of them, Arad Lund, um, who's a Swede who was doing this, went to Carnegie, and now his stuff appears on their website. I don't know how Tim Evie makes a living. He's a college student. Um, Philip Smythe is working with the Washington Institute. If you're good enough, eventually you get picked up. Brown Moses, his wife works at the post office. I don't know how he makes a living, but you know he was a stay-at-home dad, and he's looking at 400 videos a day. But God bless him. Um, you know, I hope he finds a way. But what happened? You know, this this war will go on for another 10 years, and I suppose these people will find ways to make a living. Were there well, that kind of people in Egypt? Um, yeah, it did. I mean, it did seem that after a while, some of the groups that have been on the square and coalesced on Tahrir at the beginning formed sort of citizen advocate groups and were uploading stuff and curating them. And but expert kind of people. And paying attention. I think, you know, like you say, it sort of became more expert. They got better at it. They got better at being able to sort of weave through. Um, I think that I relied a lot on... Um, Twitter and uploads because it was a community that I knew either vicariously or by sight. It was also interesting to me that, and you may find this too, that when you're dealing with a kind of crowdsource, it actually is quite self-correcting quite quickly. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things you get a lot of information, but you equally get someone immediately saying, no, that wasn't taken there. No, no, that was half an hour ago. No, it wasn't a gunshot. Um, and so when you're kind of plugged in and you can see that mechanism self-correcting in real time often, that was very helpful. Um, one of my big lessons from from Egypt um, that I'm sure is just only exponentially worse in Syria is that even when you're standing on the ground looking at something, even when you're witnessing the tank and the protest and the riot and the whatever, you can see the suffering, you can be witness to that, you can be witness to an event, but you have very little idea who's doing it, or who caused it, mm -hmm. or who started it, because the protests and the attacks are seeded with all sorts of agents provocateurs, people dressed up in different ways, or in plain clothes, or in police clothes, or whatever. I mean, it's very convoluted. Um, and as much as you don't want to pander to the kind of conspiracy theories of the Middle East, they exist for a reason, right? And the so regimes of... It's quite twisty. You yes. Know, people are misrepresenting stuff on the ground. So that's really hard... Yeah. To understand. And the regimes have gotten much better at a very cheap um, technique, which is all you have to do is sow doubt. Mm, yeah. You don't really have to prove anything. <clears throat> you just have to say, no, they didn't. Um, and, and because these things are complicated and because governments have been very reluctant to get involved, have a coherent policy that within administrations, you know, it is easy for naysayers to say, well, no, they didn't. It says right here. And so all of this feeds into um, this inability to, to grapple. And uh, in, in fact, Ukraine seems quite simple compared to the Middle East. I know it's not, um, but there seems to be a more coherent policymaking in Ukraine than there's ever been in the Middle East. Listening to you, I've been impressed at how you often say, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, which I take my hat off to you for that. Do you think there's enough of that, though, that sometimes if I have a feeling that reporters would tell us, we just don't know what's happening over there. 
more, it would be better. Do you think that's a legitimate Would it get on the air? Well, look. Would I don't know get on the air? Yeah, it gets on the air at NPRs. Yeah, I've said it before. I don't know. I've heard heard you say we just don't know. We just don't know. I I think that, that because... We're a much more structured news organization. We're not going live all day long. You know, there's a there's a real um, pressure if you've got to do a live shot every hour to pretend like you do know, or you can't go every hour and say I don't know. Um, I can do it once in the morning, and I don't feel bad about it. But I would feel bad if I all day long said I don't know. What am I doing here? Um, so I th- I think there's a, a little bit more pressure for the 24-hour news outlets to do it. Jill Doherty is one of our fellows who has been uh, in during her fellowship already to Ukraine for CNN, interrupted for a week. Um, and I'd like to get your reaction to what you yeah, heard. I was, on that point, I was just thinking, Deborah, that um, and so your question, CNN actually does that. I mean, we, I just two seconds ago wanted to make sure I knew what was going on in Ukraine. And there is a reference within the story which says, uh, we, you know, have seen video, and in fact, you can click on it. However, CNN, I can almost say it verbatim, you know, cannot attest that this is, you know, legitimate video, uh, et cetera. So we're caveating constantly because it's all of this citizen journalism, you know, videos, tweets, et cetera, that are coming in. And uh, in the old days, you know, when CNN created this thing that was called iReport, it was way before all these I remember conflicts. That. Early on, 10 years ago or something, um, that was the big issue. You know, can, how do we vet this stuff? Who are these people who are sending it in? And then there were so many within the last, let's say, five years, so many war zones where the only type of video you could get, and it was breaking, it was coming in in mass, the only thing you could do is to deal with it. You didn't have to ask for it at that point. But you had to be very careful, vet it as well as you could, and then at the point, at that point, you just leave it up to the viewer by saying, we simply don't know. Yes, but that's not really fair, because the truth of the matter is, the video is always more powerful than yes. the caveat. Um, I, I did a feature two years ago um, uh, with Al Jazeera, and it was before Syria began, because they were such a powerful force, and they were the first ones that were dealing with a thousand videos a day, and this was all coming out of Libya, and they they were using it, and they were doing it as crowdsourcing, but they wouldn't run anything that didn't come with a cell phone number, and they called that person back. Mm. Mm. I'm pretty sure that CNN must be doing as much as they can, but could I ask a question? Um, uh, Deborah, you kind of began to refer to this. I'm looking at Ukraine a lot, as Alex mentioned. And um, there, I, at least I see, the rebirth of traditional government propaganda. Uh, in fact, you know, Soviet style. And then the United States uses these techniques as well. I mean, have you noticed um, that, that growth in, let's say, taking Ukraine you have, you know, again, the men who don't wear uniforms, who are referred to as the, the uh, little green men, that's how the Russians, <laughs> who are against the opposite, the uh, operation referred to little green men, appeared without Russian uniforms. Um, and also videos. There's a video that I watched last night, which is a direct answer to a video by a young Ukrainian girl 
who said, you know, we are brothers, and it was very heartrending to, I think, that CNN played to death. I always had doubts about it, and I'm not quite, I'm positive it's... Who was she brothers with? She was, it was a pro-Ukrainian uh, video, but it smacked, to me, it was very slick, which immediately raised questions in my mind, but in any case, now the Russians have an answer to that, and uh, it, it has pictures of Obama, like this, you know, it's crazy. But uh, the question is, are you seeing um, either, you know, in Ukraine or or Syria or any other place, an, an increase in those traditional government-sponsored propaganda? Oh man, yes. I, you know, in the beginning, the Syrian uh, uh, regime was just stupid, ham-handed. I remember them doing a hilarious documentary, and it was all about how there was a fake town that was built like Hama in the Qatar desert, and there were Israeli and French and American directors there. And, you know, it was all with this scary music, and there's a big water wheel uh, in Hama, and so they had a picture of the water wheel. And this is where the demonstrations were really happening, um, and it was all being filled. I, it was just stupid. Um, but they got so much smarter over time. Um, in fact, they would do things that Al Jazeera would do because they, they, you know, for example, an Obama speech, they'd put it on because they wanted their supporters to stay with Syrian television. And then they knew if they didn't do that, that they would move to Al Jazeera. They got much better. The Syrian Electronic Army is brilliant. Um, I mean, they're a pain in the ass because they, they keep hacking people. And that's just their sort of childishness. Um, are they Iranian? Are they Syrian? No, they're are Syrian. They they're Syrian. But they're very, very good. And the, the Iranians are, are you no know, pikers when it comes to how to do this stuff. You know, there are uh, institutes in Iran that are cultivating uh, religious bloggers and hardline bloggers, at teaching them how to do it so that they can come up against uh, the reformists who are much better at it somehow. Uh, so, yes, it's been a real learning curve in Syria. It is the most sophisticated of all the, the Arab revolts. There are enormous amounts of English speakers, but you've now seen that balance shift, uh, and, and the Syrian regime is much better than they used to be. And plus, there's all these channels, all these private channels. You have Al Monarch, so you've got Hezbollah's channel, Mayadeen. There's a bunch of new private channels that have opened, and all these young, smart... English-speaking Syrians uh, who are pro-regime are, are working for them. Okay. Uh, Deborah, uh, in Turkey, in the recent effort to disband that park, to move the park, I did see some video that was drone-born, which gave a terrific view from on high, traveling all over into different places. Is this new technology making its way into the Syrian issue? I haven't uh, you know what? Yes, there is a, a yes on the Syrian uh, regime side. There's been uh, some reports of drones, uh, and they are for um, uh, for information collection. Mm, um, but the other thing that you find is that Western governments are paying for hotspots uh, for the opposition uh, and making sure that they all have the ability to get up on on the web and. I must say that some of them say, could you not take 10 pictures of that airplane? I mean, one is enough. You know, it's expensive to upload that stuff. Uh, but there, And the Turks have extended their Internet coverage all the way through to Aleppo. 
because uh, the regime keeps trying to take it down. Um, but Turkey has extended their coverage. There, I wonder if there's the same kind of stuff happening in Ukraine. Is there any attempt to try to shut down networks or no? Uh, the you, the um, Ukrainians in the east, well, first of all, in Crimea, they stopped all Ukrainian television. And then the Ukrainians, unfortunately, answered by stopping Russian broadcasts, which I think was a mistake. And now the East is control. It's the same thing. They're trying to uh, each side is trying to cut out the broadcasting of the other. Media literacy is a smarter way to do this. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get your response to this, Michael. I mean, well, I, I think my response, everybody's response, is just a fascinating discussion. Work. I mean, I, I had, I mean, I guess I had intervention questions. Uh, one of them was just stepping aside from being a reporter and become a pundit for a minute. As you've gone through the whole cycle of this horror, was there any moment when we could have done something? That would be question number one. And, and question number two is the fact that all this story about. Um, the media suggest to me that one of the reasons why we're not doing anything, we simply can't find a good guy here. We can't construct any narrative, politically effective narrative in the United States that would sustain any action at all. Uh, that is because, partly because of the increasing sophistication of the regime, but partly because of the fragmentation of the opposition, the fact that there are five wars, not one, all the things that you, I thought, brilliantly brought up. But bottom line, it just means that nothing's going to happen here because the story you're telling me is a story about nothing's going to happen. That, we can't get a narrative going. That is correct. It's, yes, it's a narrative-free zone. Um, however, it wasn't 18 months ago uh, when there was still time to do something and not uh, fret. Um, and I think that moment has passed. However, there's some very interesting developments um, of late, and that is, for example... Uh, the, uh, the American government has something like $200 million to spend on um, non-lethal aid, uh, blankets. Um, and I joked with uh, the guy who does it. I said, what's the most popular thing that they want? And he says, they want flag jackets. And I said, well, that proves they're moderates. <laughs> they're not interested in meeting those virgins. <laughs> they want to survive this thing. And he said, oh, you're right. <laughs> um, that pipeline has now taken off. And at the moment, there's a fight, as always, at the very top of the military pile between Salim Idris, who used to be the head of the uh, Supreme Military Council, and another guy from the Golan. But the Americans have decided that they're going to go ahead anyway and deliver to the rebels that they know who've already been vetted, the CIA has met them, They're, you know, they don't drink whiskey, but they want their flak jackets, and we are pumping in blankets and flak jackets and radios and ambulances and trucks to those guys, both in the north and in the south. And we are ignoring, we, uh, these American officials, are ignoring this, you know, fracturing at the top. To what end? I do not know. Uh, if I had to venture a guess, but this is only because I need to put a narrative on everything. It's just how I'm, how I'm, how I think. I, I think they're doing it because chaos is the biggest enemy in Syria. It's when Al Qaeda arrives, and neither in the south nor in parts of the north 
will the regime be able to prevail ever again uh, or in the near future? And so it is better to at least bolster these moderate rebels, make a structure in both the South and the North, help out Jordan. If there's no structure in the South, you, you, now you have between 300 and 700 uh, refugees who are still crossing the border every single day. You would have 3,000 if they open that northern border. If you can have some kind of organization in the south around Dara, you can at least deliver humanitarian aid, and there's somebody to take it from you and deliver it so that they don't all come to Jordan. Same thing in the north. You need people with guns and uniforms that can keep some kind of order, and you need somebody to fight al-Qaeda. Well, let's go back to what Michael said 18 months ago. What could have been done ideally as far as you're concerned? I think you could have given more support to what was then moderate rebels and the people who we have come now to embrace, people like the Islamic Front. All of a sudden, we are not afraid of these guys. That we More support in what form? Uh, look, you know, I see the electric cattle prod uh, from the sky. It's the NPR do not give opinion uh, cattle prod. <laughs> so I'm always a little nervous when this happens. Um, uh, but... I, you know, I think there was a moment that you could have made a very good argument for uh, funding uh, some of these rebels uh, to at least give you some structure. What happened was so many Syrians moved to al-Qaeda and Jabhat al-Nusra and, and the more radical groups simply because they had stuff. Um, and when your village is under threat, when you know, you're worried about your wife and your kids, um, you want to be armed. And so many of them moved in that direction. It was not ideologically where they belonged. And my guess is, I always say to all the people who are running the refugee camps, are any of the women here Salafists? And they all say, no. And so I have this idea that, you know, 10 years from now, when everybody goes home, it will be, Mohammed, shave off that beard. Um, that, you know, Syrians will go back to that moderate Islam that was there uh, you know, in 2010. This is not their normal ideological stand. They have now turned against al-Qaeda because they realize that. Um, but I think you could have prevented um, this crisis that we now have that is certainly against American interests that you have al-Qaeda with, uh, with a hold in the north of Syria. They control a town, Raqqa. They extort money from Mosul. They are making somewhere between 2 and $8 million a month. They are self-financing now. And they are the best funded of all of the rebel groups. I think you could have blunted that. And I think if American policymakers look back, I think some of them honestly have to say, yes, we could have blunted that. Uh, Tim, thank you um, for being here today. And thank you for doing what you're doing in a very difficult environment. I think I find it fascinating the discussion Syria and Ukraine. Um, and for purposes of, of what I'm about to say, I'd like to include Iraq and when we went into Iraq in that discussion. Um, and the lack of understanding of the players on the ground, combined with America's desire to just do something. <laughs> and the something ends up being combat. And, and the fear I have is that our fear that this country's moving to, well, the easiest thing to do is just go kill somebody in this country and then we'll feel better um, in the short term and, and then worry about it in the long run. 
So my, my specific question to you is, is, you're blessed to be at NPR. I mean, of anybody that, of any organization that can do what I'm about to ask, how do we get this country to start investing themselves in better understanding what the situation is? When you say there's five wars going on, I bet you say you could walk out in Harvard Yard today and, and not anybody could name those, three of them, even three of them. And, um, how, how do we get this country to better invest themselves in understanding what's going on before we just go, it's another <laughs> nail, hit it with a hammer? I, I don't think that we actually do that. Uh, that's what's been so interesting. And certainly as a Middle East correspondent for <clears throat> 30 years, um, it's been very interesting to talk to people out there about, so you didn't like the Bush administration because we were too heavy-handed. How does it feel now when we're not there at all? Um, and this makes people very nervous. There's certainly some in between because what is happening is there's no adult supervision. Um, and so regional actors have become more powerful because there's nobody to tell them no. So this proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians is pretty serious. And it's always, it's been there since 1979, but it has taken a very ugly turn because the superpowers aren't there to sort of manage and negotiate what happens in the region. Um, so that's an answer to part of the question. How do you get people to pay attention? Look at what's happened to the media landscape in this country. You know, NPR, the reason we have 30 million listeners is because we're doing the news. It's no real secret. And there's just not enough outlets that are doing the news. Um, you know, for I taught at Princeton for a semester, and, and I was very heartened to see that those students did three things. They read the New York Times, they listened to NPR, and they watched Al Jazeera on their phones because there wasn't an American outlet that they wanted to watch. And so I thought, well, okay, that's the smartest kids in America, except for here, of course. What do you think about Al Jazeera? <laughs> um, I think it's gotten bad uh, lately, um, even the English. Um, and they have fallen into the, ooh, this is our propaganda arm. Uh, you know, the, the Arabic, which I don't understand, but I am told by people who do, has been horrendous. Uh, they've been big supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood in a way that is just really making everybody angry in the region. Um, and I find what's happening with the English is they are turning down coverage of particular uh, events, and I'm shocked to see it because that was always... Uh, the better of the two services because all those people were, were BBC. It really happened in Turkey when the Ghazi Park uh, demonstrations happened. They pulled a reporter off the air because, yeah, because she said, there are protests happening here. And they had another guy on the air who said, no, they're not. And she was banished to Ankara for two weeks. Um, it was very interesting to watch Al Jazeera because they're pro-Muslim Brotherhood, and that's what the Turkish government is. And so for the first time, you saw it on the English side. So I, I'm, I don't know what to tell well, you about it. The English side seem to be making real progress yes. in terms of their reputation. Isn't this something that is absolutely not in their interest? One would think, but here's the problem. When you have a network that is not, um, you, you know, what's the point? They, they're not selling advertisement, so, so there's no... Uh, there's no way to correct by, okay, you're not selling ads. They're not like NPR where we have to get listener support or PBS here. There's no, there's nothing that stops them. 
um, if if the guys at the top say we're not doing that, there's nothing. But I mean, they're sinking a hell of a lot of money into it. They and are their credibility, and their ability to even get on cable systems now is something that is going to make, I would think, propaganda very much something that works against them. But like, Al Jazeera English is not the same as Al Jazeera. No, no, she was America. talking about Al Jazeera English, though. But you're talking kind of is. It kind of is. It, oh, I thought Al Jazeera America was a separate. Uh, somewhat separate, but they are using some of the packages from, from Al Jazeera English. I thought the English, English language was no, all... No, I mean, there was, there was Arabic and English, and then, then, there's and then America. Al Jazeera America was just poaching a lot of American journalists. They were. Yeah. Uh, but I... I notice it in the region. So I'm watching Al Jazeera English. I'm not watching Al Jazeera America. As a matter of fact, I've it, never English seen English as in England, or English is just as, as English, a language. But it's but it's not the same staff as as Al Jazeera America. No. And where is it? Where is it based? It's in Qatar. But not Al Jazeera America. No, they're based here. And what do you think of Al Jazeera America? Haven't seen a frame of it. I'm not here, <laughs> so I don't I don't see it. I watch Al Jazeera on my phone. Yeah, Lois. Um, when uh, Syria was really in the news a lot, and there were a lot of photographs and violence, there was a terrific article really sort of detailing what a day in the life of being in a big city is like with all of the violence. And now there's really not that much. I, I'm curious what the day-to-day life was like for the people who, who live there. Is the level of violence as intense as it was? Mm-hmm. So we, we're just not seeing it. So mm-hmm. the level of violence is as bad as it was when I read this article a few years ago, we're just not seeing. Yes, that is correct. On the other hand, Tehran. Explain, describe Tehran. Tehran, man, they are on a charm offensive, and they are giving out visas like candy. Um, I got a surprise. Eight months after I applied, they said, come on in. And not only me, but Peter Kenyon, who is uh, our uh, Istanbul correspondent who does Syria coverage, uh, sorry, Iran coverage, we both got visas. That sort of didn't, the office didn't know what to do about that. Um, And I got mine extended by three days as soon as I arrived. Um, I think the question for all of us is, can we go again? You know, can you go one time? uh, And will will they let you go back? When I went to the UN, they said, well, apply before July. Interesting date. That is the end of the six-month interim agreement. Uh, And they're a little worried that if it doesn't get passed and it gets moved past the six months, that because there's a huge fight in Tehran between the hardliners, um, a huge fight, and Rouhani. Um, He has the backing of the supreme leader to negotiate a nuclear deal. He does not have the backing to change Facebook or let ladies not wear headscarves or let rock and roll bands, uh, which they have, appear in Tehran or open up reformist newspapers. And so... That fight is pretty fierce because they can't get him on nuclear, so they're getting him on all these other issues. Um, it's very American in the way that you understand it. It's culture wars. We have them here. Mm-hmm. We do the same thing. Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.